Okay, so we are still in the book of Psalms, no surprise, okay? Been there the whole year. Continuing on through that series, and uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 124, another short psalm, by the way, just seven verses, seven verses, but it's a beautiful psalm. And before we get to that passage, though, I want to just kind of remind us about how unique and beautiful this book is. Aside from the fact that it is in Scripture, and if it is something that as we read through Psalms here, there might be things in in Psalms we might read that we might have a, a hard time understanding. In fact, there may be some words, some passages in here that may not make a whole lot of sense for us because it is again trying to understand what it was written for thousands of years ago in a language in a semitic language that is hebrew translated into a western language that is english and by the way english in my opinion from what i have read and from what i've heard is an incredibly difficult language isn't it i mean it is not as clear of a language as other languages are in this world And so it's just the nature of it. And so when we try to understand what is going on here, it can sometimes be a little difficult. Let me just encourage you, don't give up reading the Psalms. The Psalms are a beautiful collection of poetry, of songs, of worship to to God. It is our way of, of, of understanding how we can love him more fully. And here's the thing, aside from all of the beauty of that, at the very least, This is some of the most beautiful poetry that you'll ever find in the world, period. There is rarely, if any other book, that compares to the poetry that we have here in the Psalms. And we as followers of Jesus, we who have access to this beautiful book, the Bible, have an opportunity to really dive in and be able to explore and just immerse ourselves into these Psalms. And as we've been going through this series, I've been sharing a little perspective of of psalms from different people, theologians, pastors, authors, etc. And what it reminds me of is as we go through these book of psalms, is that it enables us to join with a nonstop chorus of people who are praising Jesus. We get to join in that vast, just praise of Jesus himself. And so... Here is what uh, one theologian, N.T. Wright, says about the Psalms. He says this, The Psalms offer us a way of joining in a chorus of praise and prayer that has been going on for millennia and across all cultures. Not to try to inhabit them while continuing to invent non-Psalmic worship based on our own feelings of the moment, risks being like a spoiled child who, taken to the summit of Table Mountain, with the city and the ocean spread out before him, refuses to gaze at the view because he is playing with his Game Boy. (laughs) Don't mistake the immediacy of what's around us and get distracted by the immediacy of what is around us for the beauty that is often portrayed in the book of Psalms and in Scripture in general. And by the way, Table Mountain, right? That should be familiar to us. There's a peak up here behind me called Table Mountain. If you didn't know that. So it it becomes real for us in many ways. Listen, we get to, when we dive into the Psalms here, get to join with this unbelievable chorus of praise that have been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And I just want to share this. Don't ever take this for granted, brothers and sisters. Don't ever take what we get to do here on Sunday mornings for granted. Don't ever take what we get to do here as just simply routine and, and, and falling into the trap that it's boring and all that kind of stuff. 
This is, what we are doing here is an unbelievable act only empowered by Jesus Christ in which we get to join with other believers, both past, present, and even future, because in someday, guess what? We've got a great cloud of witnesses right now who are watching and encouraging us to keep going on. One day, we will be a great cloud of witnesses for those who will come after us. And what we get to do is not ordinary. Is not ordinary. I just, I just want to share that with you. This is not ordinary. This should not have been, and yet it is. And yet it is. So today, we're going to take a little look behind the curtain. Not so much as to understand why certain things happen. As much as to understand the who behind those things. And what that individual God is doing in our midst when we face all kinds of situations, whatever they may be. And it's, I hope as we look through this psalm this morning, it, we would be reminded of the who and really immerse ourselves in trust in God, who is the one in control, who is the one that without him, it would be, if we can believe this, unfathomably worse for us. It would be unfathomably worse for this world if God wasn't still present with us. The psalm gives us a glimpse, as we will see here in Psalm 124, into who God is and realize, I hope, as we look at this psalm, that God is on our side. And I think this is important for us to realize this. You may be here today, and you may be struggling. You may be even asking yourself, is anyone in my corner? Does anyone ever have a sense of what I'm going through? Is there anyone there who has empathy? Is there anyone there who will stick up for me? Is there anyone there who will defend me? Is there anyone there who will be in my corner and root for me and for my success to overcome whatever it is I may be going through? And I want to tell you today, the answer is an unequivocal yes. And it may not be the way that we want it, it may not be the way that we think we should have that person in our corner, but it is still a yes. God is on our side. Period. Period. And I know it may not always seem that way, especially when we are in the soup, right? Especially when we are going through the tough stuff of life. That's the time that we will oftentimes think there's no one here, no one on my side. And I hope that as we see in the psalm today, that is just simply not true. God is on your side. He truly is. God is on your side. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to have victory. He wants us to be alive. That is God's desire for us. That's what he wants. And so today, I hope that we will come away at the very least of believing that God is on our side, okay? So let's dive in. Let's go to this beautiful psalm, Psalm 124. I'm going to read it through. Seven verses, it's not that hard. David writes it, it's a song of ascents. It's written by David, again, we're in this, this uh, section of, of psalms that was uh, known as the song of ascents that, that the Israelites would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem, as they were going up to the temple to worship him. They would sing these songs. And remember, Psalms 120 through 134 cover the song, songs rather, of ascents. And this is what David writes. If the Lord had not been on our side... This is a song. 
Let Israel say again, if the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger raged against us. The water would have overpowered us. The current would have overwhelmed us. The raging water would have overwhelmed us. The Lord deserves praise, for he did not hand us over as prey to their teeth. We escaped with our lives like a bird from a hunter's snare. The snare broke and we escaped. Our deliverer is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, what I find so amazing about this psalm is David starts out with a hypothetical, doesn't he? If, imagine, if God had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been on our side, when we were attacked, then we would not have survived. We would not have come out of it. We would not have made it through this attack. And as I read this psalm, there's discussion about whether or not, what in the world is David referring to? Is he referring to some sort of battle that they had recently come through? Is he referring to a future event, maybe the exile of Israel itself? Um, Perhaps and this is where I kind of lean, most likely David might have, might have been referring to the constant battles and skirmishes that the Israelites had with the Philistines. And if you know anything about Scripture and about the, 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 the journey of the Israelites, you know that aside from the Egyptians, who played an enormous role in Israel's history, there was also another group that also played a big role, and that was the Philistines, right? And David had a lot of interaction with the Philistines, if you remember. Perhaps the earliest one we know is David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, and he was a big man, right? He was a big man. And and, and David killed Goliath. He was just this little boy, if you will, a young man. And he killed Goliath with a slingshot, right? A slingshot. Now, it wasn't any ordinary slingshot. This was a slingshot that, if you put it in today's context when he shot that rock at, De- at Goliath, it most likely would have been the equivalent of an arrow. It was that kind of speed, that kind of damage that could, that could be done with the kind of slingshot. We're not just talking the little boy, boy slingshot that we oftentimes think of. No, this was, a, this was a real slingshot. And so, I mean, this is, this is the stuff. And there, there was constant battles between the Philistines and the Israelites. And in fact, one of the more famous battles, in addition to David and Goliath, was the time when the Philistines attacked Israel and they carted off the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that story? They finally got the Ark of the Covenant. Eli was the high priest at the time. Eli actually died. He fell over, broke his neck when he heard that the Ark had been captured. Uh, Samuel, who was going to be the last judge and the last high priest of that era, um, was just coming into that time, but had not yet assumed that role. And nonetheless, nonetheless, they carted off the ark, the Philistines did, and put the ark with their God, who was a man-made God, and they worshiped man-made gods, because the Philistines not only worshiped man-made gods, but they happened to be more militaristic, they happened to be always a little bit more stronger, they were a little bit more violent as a society and a people. So nonetheless, they took the ark and put it with their God as a symbol to say, Our God is greater than your God, Israel. And we know what happened. Right? They put it next to Dagon, who was their God. And of course, they go in one day, and they're going to worship Dagon, and what do they find? That Dagon is flat on his face. 
next to the ark. And this is where I get to do my Larry the Cable Guy. Well, gone. <laughs> and they pick him up, right? They pick him up, and they set him back up. The next day, they go in to worship him again. He's again down. They, well, gone. you know? Put him back up. They go in again. This time, his arms and feet are, are broken off. And not only that, the Philistines began to get sick. They began to have some problems with themselves, and they finally figured it out, I think it's because of this ark. There's something wrong with this ark here. And so they put it on a cart, and they said, if it goes back to Israel, let it go back to Israel. Let it go wherever it needs to go. And sure enough, they put the, cart, uh, the ark on the cart, and the cart wandered with the ox pulling it back into Israel's territory, right? I mean, that's just a great story. A great story. The point being is this. Oh, yeah, 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 Philistines. You might have defeated Israel, but you did not defeat their God. Only God can defeat himself. Only God could allow himself to be captured, which he did. And so there was these constant battles back and forth between the Philistines and the Israelites. And oftentimes, because the Philistines were a more militaristic society and Israel was a more agrarian society, they grew their food, they were farmers, shepherds, and stuff like that, the Philistines would oftentimes look at the Israelites and say, hey, they've got food. Well, we're just too militaristic to grow our own. No, it's harvest season. Let's go. Market's open. And that's often the times when they would attack and, and steal the food and all that kind of stuff. Now, understand that the Israelites, when they moved into the promised land, that they said, hey, guess what, Philistines? God has given us this land. We're going to take it. However, it just went back and forth, back and forth. And there were times they would lose, and there were times they would win. Perhaps, as David is writing this, this is one of the times that they won. And eventually, eventually, the Philistines would be defeated. Psalm 43, verse 3 says this. For they, that being the Israelites, did not conquer the land by their swords, and they did not prevail by their strength, but rather by your power. That's God's power, strength, and good favor. For you were partial to them. Eventually, they would be wiped out. Here's the point. Here's the point. If it had not been for God, guess what? They would have been defeated. And I think that there is something for us to learn from this as well. If God had not been on my side, I think I too would be defeated by those who attack me. Which brings up a really interesting truth that I think we need to realize. And here's a truth. One truth, I think. And it's this. I have an enemy that wants to destroy me. Whether we like it or not, not everyone likes us. Not everyone likes me. I get it. No matter how hard I try, I just want to be liked. That's all I want. I want to be not just liked, I want to be loved. And I, and I, I, I try to seek approval in really unique ways of just wanting to get, be liked at the very least and be loved at, at most, right? And I mean, maybe we all do that in some ways, is that we try to, hey, do, do you like me? Right? Hey, you know, different ways of trying to figure out. But let me just say this. There may be people in your life that just simply don't like you. And it could be for a variety of reasons. They don't like you because of how you talk. They don't like you because of how you act. They don't like you because you're perceived as being maybe successful in their eyes, and they're not. They don't like you 
because of your political beliefs or your religious beliefs. They don't like you because you may be a Christ follower. They just may not like you. However, if you're one of the very few people who everyone likes, who everyone likes, congratulations, keep that. And yet there still is an enemy who doesn't like you. There still is an enemy. And that is Satan. But even before that, there's an enemy even, even just as powerful, not, not quite, but just as, close enough, a close second, and that is sin itself. I love what Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says, and God is speaking to Cain. And Cain is upset because his offerings aren't as acceptable as Abel's are. And God says this to Cain, Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. How do we subdue sin? Do what is right. Do what is right, and you will subdue sin. Do what is right. Simple, right? But how easy is that? Truly. But pastor, you don't understand what was going on in this situation. And while I did what I did, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I've done the same thing. It was still wrong. It was still wrong. But in addition to sin, there's also an enemy, Satan, who is also out there to try to destroy you and I. If for no other reason, because we follow Jesus. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10 says this. Peter writes, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Now, which is really interesting here, enemy, that Greek word there, stands for accuser, plaintiff, opponent. Someone who is there to make a case against you, to accuse you of doing things that maybe you did not do, of saying things that you did not say, of thinking things that maybe you did not think. I should never point, by the way. That's very, very bad. I should only point at myself. If it's any comfort, I've got three other fingers pointing at me. So um, here's the thing, is that that's, that's what enemy means. Here's what it means to devour, to swallow up, to destroy, cause an end to. In other words, Satan is an enemy of all of us who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, and what he aims to do is to accuse us even falsely, but more importantly, to devour us, to put an end to us, if you will, to destroy us. We have an enemy. We really do. We have an enemy. And that enemy, if it isn't another person or persons, at the very least, is sin and Satan, the two S's, sin and Satan. And what I love about what David says here in Psalm 124 is, guess what? If God had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed alive when sin and the devil came knocking. We wouldn't have made it. We won't make it if God is not on our side. If God is not on our side. Here's what, another thing it says to me, this passage. It says this, without God, I would be consumed by violent anger. Without God, I would be consumed not just by anger, but by violent anger. 
David writes this. They, those that attacked us, those who are angry with us, those who, who just can't stand us, those who are our enemies, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger raged against us. Have you ever experienced someone so angry at you, you didn't know why they were angry? Have you ever had someone so, you're like, where did this come from? Where in the world did this come from? And they are just so angry with you. And have you ever seen, a, the, the interesting thing about this word anger in the Hebrew is it is a very physical, descriptive word. Literally, that word anger is nostrils. Nostrils. In the flaring of the nostrils. Have you ever seen someone so angry their nostrils flared? Their face turned red. Their, 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 their look like got all contorted, everything else. Anger is an incredibly physically descriptive word in the Hebrew language. Let me give you one passage here that kind of describes this here. Daniel 3.19. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were told by Nebuchadnezzar, you better bow down to this statue of me or I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And they refused. But listen to what happens then in, in, in uh, verse 19 of Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his disposition changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you, did you catch that? He was filled with rage and his face contorted. He was so angry. He was so angry. You ever, have you ever been in a situation where you were so angry? What was going on physically with you at that point? Heart rate was elevated. Adrenaline was pumping. Your face was probably in some way. You can't hide violent anger physically. You just can't. It's really, really hard. Your voice might be elevated. You're yelling. You're screaming. All that kind of stuff. You might be hitting things. All that kind of stuff. It is just really, really hard to hide violent. It's an incredibly physical thing. And, and, and as a result, Nebuchadnezzar says this. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. What I find interesting about that story is the guys who put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace died doing it, but they survived. Never mind that at the end when he's looking through the peephole to find out what's going on that they see an angel walking with these guys, you know, kind of thing. I just find it fascinating. These guys actually survived being thrown into the furnace when those who were throwing them in died because it was so hot. I think that there is something here we need to realize about this thing called anger. It's real. We all have it. We all have experienced it, I'm sure. We all have either been angry or someone has been angry at us. And there is something about anger that we need to realize that if we don't have it under control or if it comes at us, it can turn out very, very, very badly. Uh, listen to some of these things that others have said about anger. One is this. Anger is a condition in which the tongue works faster than the mind. <coughs> right? Yeah. And that's why I say, here's another one. Speak when you're angry, and you will make the best speech you will ever regret. <laughs> I, I once heard someone say, Dan, it's not the things that I've said that I'm most proud of. It's the things I didn't say that I'm most proud of. Anger, man, you just can't help it. We, we just, it just wells up and we just have to explode. 
Here's another one. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else, except you are the one who gets burned. Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. And finally this. Holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Man, if it wasn't for God being on my side, I, I think I would be consumed with this. I think I'd be swallowed up by it. And, and you know what? Even as a follower of Jesus, if I get angry, do you know, how I, you know what I do oftentimes? Oh, it's a justified anger. This is a righteous anger. An injustice has been committed, and now I'm angry for the right reasons, right? I mean, we go through these mental gymnastics and these spiritual exercises to try to justify our behavior and what we're feeling and what we're doing, and we think that it's correct when oftentimes it isn't. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, if there's ever a moment in which you find yourself doing spiritual gymnastics to justify your behavior, your attitude, your words, chances are it's not right. Chances are you're probably sinning. Chances are you probably have fallen into the temptation of sin. I think as David writes these words, I can't help to think that if it wasn't for God being on my side, the attacks of the enemy, whether they are a person or Satan or sin, I, I couldn't survive. And here's the other thing. If it wasn't for God being on my side, I, I could easily be consumed by anger. I'll be honest with you. My first emotion, I don't cry very easily. I'm German. It's just genetically predispos predisposed to that, I guess. But I, I go to anger. I go to anger. And, and by the way, you want to know if I'm angry? I don't talk. I don't talk. And what I often, I just, I just close in. I just close in. That's what I do. And what I'm trying to do is don't push me. Don't push me. Don't push me with you know, that person or whatever else who might be, whatever might be making me angry, right? Don't, and they want me to what? Emote. They want me to, express myself. You want me to express myself? You don't want me to express myself. Not now. It's not good. It's not good. And, and so I, I, I could find myself easily consumed by anger. Easily consumed by anger. And I oftentimes tell myself, that is wrong for me. That is wrong. It's not wrong to have anger. It's not wrong to feel that emotion. It's not wrong to have those kinds of things well up inside. It's not wrong. What is wrong is the way that it comes out, the way that is expressed, the damage I could potentially do to other people around me, particularly to those that I deeply love. That I deeply love. And so I can't help to think that if it wasn't for God being on my side, oh, how easily it could be for me just to justify me being angry and doing things out of my anger. I read an article this past week by David Brooks. And the title of the article, I, I'm going to mess it up, so forgive me, but it's a great article. It was, How America Got So Mean. 
Have you ever noticed, church, that we live in a culture today, it seems like everyone's just angry. Everyone's just angry. I, I heard about in California that someone was flying a, 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 a rainbow flag outside a store, and, and there was a man who came and didn't like that and shot and killed the owner of the store. And the police shot and killed him. Just so angry. And you know what David Brooks makes an, an observation about why we got so mean as a country? is because the institutions that are responsible for forming us in a moral way, for responsible for us to teach us how it is that we should live amongst ourselves, how we should be respectful of people, how we should be kind to people, how we can have disagreements with each other and still have conversations with each other to talk out our differences. Those institutions, one being the schools, hard to believe. Some of you might, be, might remember if you went to schools, you know, if you were there in the 50s and 60s, that oftentimes they were places that weren't just educating us on reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they were also there to form us as moral people. And it was around that time, actually, that the schools began to diverge from that because there was a train of thought coming out of World War II and others that began to say the problem with our world today and specifically with America is we have a hierarchy that we need to get ourselves out from under. And there was another school of thought said, no, no, we need to understand how it is that we should be better able to just talk and be with each other in community. And guess which one won? The hierarchy, getting out from under a hierarchy to do whatever it is we want to do. And here's the second institution that was responsible for it, and that is the church. That is the church. The church today, sadly, isn't always viewed as a moral-forming institution as it once was. It's oftentimes viewed as a place to get angry. The government's going to come in and take your parental rights away. Oh! The government's going to come in and he's going to ban God. Good luck with that. Seriously, think about that for a moment. You know, when they banned prayer in schools, that's when the country went down. Do you honestly think prayer stopped in schools? Yeah. I mean, I mean, church has become a place where we get angry. And we say, we've got to get out there and we've got to defend our rights as Christians. We've got to get out there and battle for God. This is a holy war. And we justify our anger by believing that what we are engaging is, is God's will. Jesus himself said it to his followers when he was going to the cross. He said this, and I'm paraphrasing, but look it up in John. He said this, there are going to be those who are going to arrest you, put you in prison, and kill you, and they believe they're going to do it because that is God's will. It didn't take very long for us to try to flip that around and believe that we're doing, and what we're doing now is the same thing. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And, and as I'm saying this, I'm getting angry. <laughs> right? Maybe you are too. Man, I, I missed out on this. Right? I mean, it's true. We ought to be coming in here, and this ought to be in some ways a, a, a way for us to behave differently, for us to engage differently, for us to be able to come into this place of worship and not go out angry, 
but go out encouraged. Not to go out, going out and saying, I am going to go out there and fight the good fight, but rather go out there and say, I am going to go and I'm going to love people. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm going to respect people. Dear Lord Jesus, please help me see these people that I encounter this week the way that you see them. You know that that is my, my number one prayer? Dear Lord Jesus, help me to see the people I encounter this week the way that you see them. Help me to love these people that I may encounter this week, whether it's the person at the store, the person at church, the person wherever I may be. Help me to love them the way that you love them. Let me be kind. Please, Jesus, don't let me be consumed by what the rest of the world is being consumed by, and particularly our own country. I think, church, it's okay for us to reclaim once again our role as teaching people how it is to behave, to be kind, to be loving, to engage each other in ways that is respectful and respects and looks and cherishes people as who they really are made in God's image. Amen? That's our task. No wonder, then, when we embrace this, I think, David ends the psalm by saying this, the Lord deserves praise. Verse 6, for he did not hand us over as prey to their teeth. We escaped with our lives like a bird from a hunter's snare. The snare broke and we escaped. Our deliverer is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. I, I wonder how many of us we're this close this week to falling in to sin. I'm sure we did. I know I did. But how much of the other sins were we close to falling into and we just weren't fully aware of it because God is on our side? And in that moment, intervened. In that moment, got us out. In that moment, said no. I love what Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32 and 35 through 38 share. And Paul writes the following. What then shall we say about these things? And by the way, the things that Paul was saying about is the regular ups and downs of following Jesus. The highs and the lows. The things that are really tough in life and the things that are really awesome in life. That is just what it means to follow Jesus. We go through all sorts of things. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? And verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Did you hear that, church? We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. It's not if the attack will happen. It's just simply when. It's not if someone is going to be angry with us. It's just a matter of when. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. God is on our side, church. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, 
nor things to come, nor powers will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. That's the promise. It's more than that, though. That's the truth. And it's not a truth that we get to hold on to one day. It's a truth that is prevalent right 